Maybe, maybe I have batteries. Helps if I turn the microphone on. Some of you are looking this morning and you're saying, Chris is wearing a suit, something is wrong. Other people are saying, no, things are finally right. Uh, if you like that I'm wearing a suit this morning, I'm going to encourage you, get married on a Sunday. Uh, I have often joked that I own one suit. It is my Marion and Berrien suit. And if I perform your wedding and I know you long enough, I'll wear this suit for you twice. Hopefully not, but, you know, it's always a possibility. Um, This morning, we're continuing our series on the book of Ephesians, uh, and I've kind of constructed this sermon series in such a way that we front-load it with a lot of theology, and then we end it with a lot of practical application. I've constructed it that way because Paul constructed his book that way. In fact, Paul constructs most of his books in that way. Uh, if, If it has the name of a city or a group of people from a city at the top, you can rest assured that what Paul does is he begins by giving you a lot of theology saying, this is what God is doing. This is how we understand what God is doing. This is how we know that God is in fact doing what I'm saying that he's doing. And now this is how we become involved in what God is doing. Go and read the book of Romans, read Galatians, read you know, Ephesians like we are right now, and you will see this is Paul's constant work. Now when you go and you read First and Second Timothy, when you read Titus, what you begin to see is that that changes a little bit. A, a letter to a specific individual often starts right off in the thick of things saying, this is what I want for you to do. It's because Paul can make the assumption that his audience already knows the theology that supports what it is he's sharing. Paul doesn't give abstract instruction. Nothing that he shares is something that is unfounded in some way, shape, or form. Paul has a very clear picture of God's work in the world and wants the church to live into that work. So as we look this morning at what are oftentimes seen as just practical commands, I want us to think about the ways in which they fit into God's work, what it is God is doing, and the work he has invited us into. Um, I want to look here at the the beginning of the middle of Ephesians uh, chapter 4, verse 17 and verse 25. If you'll follow along here, it says, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do, in the futility of their minds. So he's saying, look, this is how you have walked. He's saying no longer, right? Which means at some point in time or another, we all walked like the Gentiles, or at least the Ephesian church had walked like the Gentiles. And this is what he says, Therefore, having put away falsehood, let each one of you speak the truth with his neighbor. For we are members one of another. What is the difference between a person who walks like the Gentiles do and a person who knows the truth of the gospel? This is it. Magnified. Each one of you speak the truth to his neighbor. You are members one of another. 
This is a theme that comes up over and over again in Scripture. You know, I've often thought that there are only about three or four different topics in Scripture that we really preach on if we boil it down. There, there is the big picture gospel, what it is that God is doing, the way in which Jesus, as our Lord and Savior, has offered us salvation, re- remission of our sins, participation in the kingdom of heaven. That is number one, the thing that we should always come back to. The, the other thing that I think oftentimes comes up is this idea that you know we have a grand expectation for what is to come. That's something that we preach on often. What are we looking forward to? And how can we make what we look forward to a little bit more of a present reality? Sometimes we have to ask the hard question, why are things the way that they are? That's a sermon topic that comes up frequently. But there's something unique about the Sunday morning gathering that when we are all together, we have the opportunity to circle back around to what I think is maybe the fourth most important topic that we could discuss. And not not fourth by ranking, but uh, fourth because it's fourth in the line of the things I've said this morning. Us, together, participating in God's work. When we gather together, when we, the body of Christ, are together, it's important for us to recognize who we are. When, when we talk about these verses, about us walking in step with the Spirit together, about being the body of Christ built together, about being the home that Christ dwells in together, I think that we're, we're kind of giving ourselves a rallying cry for moving forward. And I think in many ways, Ephesians constantly comes back to this idea that our togetherness is essential to what God is doing. Our unity, the lack of division that we have amongst one another, even as we recognize that we are different from one another, we find commonality in our faith and mission. If you've heard me preach this several times over the last couple months, that's because I think this might be the thing that is most essential for our church moving forward, is being defined by our unity, one with another. Whether or not we agree on everything, whether or not we boil down capital T theology to the same ideas, if we're unified in our mission... I think that we're accomplishing much of what it is that Paul is encouraging the early church in. We want to speak the truth to our neighbors, and we are members one of the other. Keep that in mind as we move forward in our sermon this morning. Big chunk of text up here on the screen this morning. Be angry and do not sin. Do not let the sun go down on your anger and give no opportunity to the devil. Let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor doing honest work with his own hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouths, but only such as is good for building up as fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. Let all bitterness and wrath and anger and clamor and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, as God in Christ forgave you. Have you ever been in someone's home and you walk in and you see a sign on their wall and it says something like, in our house we laugh together, eat meals at the dinner table, have fun 
together, throw water balloons at one another. I don't, I don't know what else goes on that sign, but a lot of families have an idea of who they are, and they might begin with, in our house, this is what we do. This is what we look like. I actually had a professor in college who had told us uh, that he, he had a family um, like constitution on the wall, and every member of the family got to add items to that family constitution. And any time that there was something that happened in the house that wasn't supposed to happen because it wasn't in the constitution of the family, the children could go over and say, Dad, that's not on the constitution, <laughs> which is a dangerous thing to do to give your children that liberty. But one of, the, one of the things that stuck with me about that is that in many ways, we have to define who our family is and what it means to be a part of our family. Oftentimes when I do premarital counseling, I I remind the couple that one of the things that they should be considering is what it means for them to be a family. Growing up in your household, what did it mean to celebrate Christmas? That might be something you take for granted. When you celebrate Christmas together, you do all these rituals and routines that may be unique to your family that you've just assumed Every other family does. And when you marry someone, you start asking yourself the question, what does it mean for us to be a family? What do we do in our family? Paul is telling us that previously we were part of a very broad and different family. When you were as you previously were, you walked like the Gentiles. Go and read the book of Romans, read Ephesians, read Galatians, and you start seeing these things pop up. He says, there was a way in which you lived prior to coming to Christ. That was your family identity. That was who you were. And you maybe even thought that was normal and justified it to yourself. But not so now. What does it mean to be a part of the household of God? What does it look like if we were to draft a constitution to put on the wall and say this is what it means to be a part of the Newburgh Church of Christ, specifically, or more broadly, the Church of Christ? Now, of course, we could pick up the Bible and say this is it right here, but we could boil it down. What would we say it means to be a member of the body of Christ? What kind of behaviors are normal in this family? How do we emulate the father that we follow, the one who's adopted us as joint heirs with his son? In our house, we, and then Paul begins to explain what that looks like. Here, chapter 4, verse 26 through 32, as we read, we're not slanderers. We don't steal from people. In fact, we earn what we have and we share it with others. We do not grieve God's Holy Spirit. If you think back to our Holy Spirit series, one of the things we talked about is that the Holy Spirit is not a thing, it's a person. And that it can be grieved. And that what grieves the Holy Spirit oftentimes is the way that we might treat one another. I've talked to my own children about this before. You know, there there are two people in this world that I cannot even begin to explain my love for that oftentimes grieve my heart when they mistreat one another. That's how God describes the grieving of the Holy Spirit. And Paul says, in our house, we don't grieve 
the Holy Spirit. Paul continues on in chapter 5, verse 1 through 2, by really clarifying what it means to be a part of the household of God. Therefore, be imitators of God as beloved children. My daughter is really good at the imitating her father thing. Uh, in fact, I think I've probably told you guys this before. There, there have been times that we're you know, sitting around the house and she asks, Dad, why do you do this? When you preach, why do you, and, and she knows my mannerisms. In fact, she also knows, you know, the right ways to get under my skin. I'll be standing and having a conversation with her and she plays the repeat after me game, right? And she's really good at it. Like I tried to throw her off and she is a lot better at it than I am. She is a good imitator of her father. My son, sometimes much to my chagrin, is a good imitator of his father. I think many of the best and worst things about myself I have unfortunately passed on to him. Sorry, Micah, you you know, are a slouch, and you get that from me. So uh, enjoy the back pain in your 30s. Be imitators of God as beloved children and walk in love. This is the second time he's using that walk phrase, right? Previously, you walked as the Gentiles didn't say previously, but don't walk as the Gentiles anymore. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us, a fragrant offering and sacrifice to God. In our house, we walk in love. We give ourselves up for one another a sacrifice to God. Paul is trying to define for us what the family of God looks like. If God has constructed a house for us, invited us into that house, encouraged us to help build that house, laid the foundation, the cornerstone, set its parameters and said, now you too build this household up, what does it look like for us to then occupy that household? as his adopted children, with him as our father. And he's, he's building this out. He's giving us the family constitution. He's putting that sign up on the wall that says, in our house we love. We walk in love. We lay down our lives one for the other. 15 through 21, look carefully then how you walk. Not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are, we translate it as evil, but just bad. These are some bad days. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand that the will of the Lord, what the will of the Lord is. Do not get drunk with wine, for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit, addressing one another in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs, singing and making melody. To the Lord with your heart, giving thanks always and for everything. To God the Father, in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. In our house we say please and thank you. We thank the Father. In our house we are temperate. We don't fill ourselves with things that are going to cause us harm or cause harm to others by our overstimulation. Paul continues. 
But before we continue, I want us to think about these words. Because this is the key to understanding what Paul thinks our household looks like. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. Submitting to one another out of reverence for Christ. there is a tendency from here to rush to what comes next. A tendency to say, this is, this is just Paul transitioning here. What's really important is the part that comes after. But notice who Paul lets off the hook in this phrase. Read it really carefully. Who's not included in this passage? The answer, of course, is no one. Every one of us, by Paul, and because we believe in the inspiration of Scripture through the Holy Spirit, by God, is a command to submit to one another. This is not Chris submitting to John or John submitting to Chris. This is not Don submitting to Kyle or Kyle submitting to Don. This is not Josh submitting to Amy, or Amy submitting to Josh. This is us submitting to one another. There is no or placed in here. In fact, as we move forward and we look at the relationships that Paul is about to define, it's important for us to remember that there are no ors in this situation. Paul is not saying, for some of you, submission is the right thing, but for others, you should be the one causing others to submit. Paul is very clearly telling us submission is the status quo in the household of God. It is the way things are. None of us are exempt from submitting one to the other. Now, submission is a really difficult word for people in our culture because we don't necessarily like the idea of submitting to anybody. But you know what? There are two words that Paul uses over and over and over and over and over and over and over again in Scripture. One of them is submission. The other is love. And oftentimes, those two things are intrinsically linked with one another. Paul tells us to submit to one another. He tells us to submit to the Father. He tells us to submit to the authorities. He tells us to submit to our spouses. He tells us over and over and over again to be in submission. But you know what Paul doesn't ever tell anybody? Rule over somebody. Have a domineering attitude toward them. Have an iron fist in the relationships in your life. It's amazing what Paul doesn't say, because in order for this to happen, it means that every one of us has to see ourselves as in submission to every other one of us. But again, we don't really like the word submit, and so we struggle with even defining it. We struggle with coming to a conclusion about what it looks like for us to submit one to the other. You see, Paul, Paul talks about wives and husbands. He talks about children and parents. He talks about slaves 
and masters. Your translation might say bondservants. I'm not going to sanitize it. It says slaves and masters. And Paul tells every one of these individuals in the verse we've just read, submit to one another. Now he's going to use that word submit again, specifically in reference to wives, children, and slaves, but he is going to define what submission looks like to all six of these groups of people. We read, wives submit to your husbands. And we don't read, husbands submit to your wives, except we already have. Submit yourselves one to another. But we do read that husbands are to love their wives as Christ loved the church, giving his life for us. See, it's assumed that all the women know what it means to submit to their husbands. All the children know what it means to submit to their fathers. All the slaves know what it means to submit to their masters. Now, Paul gives them a little bit more guidance than that. He doesn't just leave them hanging and say, there's no possible way that you could misunderstand what I mean by submit. He does give them further infer not inference, further instruction into what it looks like to submit. But the fact that he includes husbands and parents and masters is tremendously, tremendously important for us to understand. Because in this culture, in this time, it wasn't really understood what it meant for a husband to submit himself to his wife. That wasn't the way that the culture worked. Wives were in submission to their husbands. They knew where they belonged. And the husband was the lord of the house. And everyone was in submission to him. Children knew what it meant to submit to their father. They might submit to their mother. Although there's some interesting sociological research that the male children in the household did not submit to their mother after the age of 10 in Roman times. In fact, they were kind of seen as the second in command. And here Paul is telling them children. Now, keep in mind, children doesn't necessarily mean small children, but it doesn't necessarily mean adult children either. Instead, what it just means is offspring. Submit yourselves to your parents. In the Lord, for this is right. But Paul gives them instruction on what submission looks like, but he also gives the husbands and fathers an understanding of what it looks like to submit to their wives and their children. When Paul instructs the fathers, he says, do not exasperate your children. Do not anger them. Do not cause them to rebel, essentially. If you want them to submit to you, be a father worthy of being submitted to. And the most importantly, you have this slaves and masters idea here, and one of the things that Paul says to the masters is, hey, don't mistreat your slaves, because remember that they know that you have a master in heaven whom you are in submission to. And I begin thinking about this. What does it mean for a master to submit himself to his slave? 
Now, Paul doesn't use that language in this verse, but remember again, Paul has already said, submit yourselves to one another, you masters and slaves, you husbands and wives, you children and fathers. And what does it have to do with the master that is in heaven that your slaves know about that causes you to submit yourself to them? Your actions and the ways in which you do or do not submit to the people around you whom God has placed in your care, they speak about the master that you serve. I think it's interesting that this is kind of where Paul leaves this thread. Your slaves know that you serve a master in heaven. How do the actions of a poorly submitting master speak to the character of the master they serve? Elsewhere, Paul talks to wives about how their submission to their non-believing husbands might save them. About how non-believing masters or slaves might be a blessing to one another. In our submission to one another, we offer a witness to the God that we serve. When people walk through the door of our church building, do they see two groups, those who are in submission and those who rule? What does that witness to them about the nature of our God? See, Paul is highly aware that there are people who are not a part of the church who witness our daily behavior. We've all known families before that were like, oh, well, we know how it works in their household. We know that the father yells at the children. We know that the wife gets in the car before going somewhere and sits for five to ten minutes to cry to breathe deeply because it's the first time in a week that she's felt safe. We know that in that household, people are afraid, they are stepped on, and they are mistreated. And there's not a one of us that even with an invitation would feel welcome in that household. Paul has told us that we are to build the body of Christ. We are to build the household together. Some of us have been equipped to equip others to do it, but all of us have been given the mission of building the household of God. So to what end do all of these things matter? How wives and husbands interact with each other, how children and parents interact with each other, how those who have power and those who don't have power interact with one another. This is the key. People outside of our doors say, we know how it works in that household. What we want for them to know is that we walk in love, just as Christ walked, submitting ourselves one to the other, laying our lives down for one another, not provoking one another to anger, remembering that the master that we serve in heaven 
is the one that we draw our whole identity from. If we struggle with this understanding of what it means to submit to one another, I want to submit to you the words of Jesus. The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors. But not so with you. Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater one? Uh, greater one who reclines at table, or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. We want an image of what it looks like to submit one to another. We have a God who left the kingdom of heaven, or rather brought the kingdom of heaven to earth, and everywhere that the kingdom of heaven went, the Lord of heaven knelt and served others, washed the feet, healed the sick, cared for those who could not care for themselves, and ultimately submits himself to death, even death on a cross for the sake of others. What does it look like for us to submit? Well, in our household, it looks very unlike it does with the Gentiles. We don't walk like they do anymore. In our house, we love one another, laying down our lives for one another. And I want to encourage you to think about the way that we construct our household, the way that we behave in our household, not as an incidental set of commands that if we don't keep them in a particular way, we've done the wrong thing, but instead as a witness to the God that we serve. Now, both of those can be true at the same time. We can say, God said this is what I'm supposed to do, and so I'm going to do it. And that's all right. But the greater justification that Paul gives to us is that this is how the household of God is built. When we submit one to another, because the people around us see our best and worst behaviors, and they serve as a testimony about the God that we serve. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, we pray that we can be your household. We pray that each one of us has the constitution of this family written on our hearts. That as we interact with our neighbors, they see us love our wives, love our husbands, submit to one another, submit to our children, submit to our brothers and sisters, submit to those we have power over. Not because we want to be lauded or praised or lifted up or, or shown as some exemplars, but because we want people to be able to say, this is what it looks like to be in the household of God. This is how it works in their household. So that they might know you better. And so, Father, as we, as we submit ourselves to you, we pray that we are in submission to one another. It's all this that we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. If you have need of the church this morning, if you need someone to pray alongside you, if you need someone to wash your feet, if you need someone to lift you up, this morning I'm going to be at the back of the auditorium. Our elders are here and they'd be happy to visit with you. Uh, we have some ladies here that would be happy to pray with you or walk alongside you in your need. If you have anything that you need, you can meet me at the back of the auditorium and we'd be happy to help you in whatever way we can. Let's continue our worship at this time if you'll stand and sing.